Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you tonight and we ask that you would take this time and bless it. Give us a better understanding of your word and challenge us to be just more faithful to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A few back there. Brother Jason has them. And uh, we are continuing in our study of bibliology, the, the doctrine of the word of God. What we believe about the Bible. And the lesson tonight is one of those lessons that I could teach it all in one sentence. Believe the Bible. Amen? Okay, let's go home. No. Uh, The... uh, And and I feel like I'm I'm repeating some things, but every, every point just came out as it, as it put this together, and I, I want us to spend some time. The central issue regarding the Bible, I even went over older outlines that, where I've taught on the Bible and really have not put all of this into one single lesson. And, and, and the central issue regarding the Bible is one word, authority. It is... Authority is one of those words, it's almost a dirty word in modern English. Anyone who has authority or exercises authority must be mean and cruel and wanting to dominate other people. And, and, uh, and I even, as a young preacher, I remember, I, I'm not here to tell you what to do. And then I thought about, wait a minute, yes I am. Uh, I am here to tell you what to do. I am here to tell you that this book has authority to make decisions for you. Now, of course, we know that there are people who refuse to accept the authority of the Bible. Uh, Don't be afraid uh, of those people. Feel pity for them. Pray for them. There are people who just refuse uh, to believe that the Bible is God's Word, that it has any authority whatsoever for determining their life. And if someone actually believes that, there's very little that we can do to witness to them or have any conversation with them. It was the psalmist that said, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If someone will not accept this book as the Word of God, I, I have very little to say uh, because everything we believe comes from the Bible. Everything we know about God comes from this book. And so if you want to give any credence to the Bible at all, you really only have one or two choices. And uh, I want to present those tonight to you and, of course, uh, some other things that will help Understand why these are the only two choices. Either the words of this book are the authority, or what someone or someones say the Word of God says. Either the words are the authority, or man is the authority. Uh, You can only have two choices. And uh, we'll we'll just walk through, of course, uh, if you've been here very long, I think you figured out where, where we are. We believe that the words of this book 
are God's authority, that it is the sum total of God's revelation. And, and last week we spent time, the scripture claims to be that. Uh, every word of this book is claimed to be God's revelation. In fact, this is the sum total of God's revelation. And that's why when someone comes along and says, I've received a message from the Lord, we ought to just turn them off. Uh, someone says, I've received revelation from Jesus, and turn them off. The only revelation that you will receive is what is written down. Uh, there are many people who claim all of these things, but if the words of this book are to be believed, and I believe they are, we have no place to go, no other source. We must go to the Bible. And so... We look and we say, uh, I'm just going to get ahead of myself for a second here. How many of you have heard this? But there are so many different interpretations. How many of you have heard that? Well, we're gonna, I'm going to try to answer that question, and it's in authority. You see... If we believe that the authority is in the words, what that demands is that we take a simple, literal, grammatical, historical, cultural, social, if you want to use those terms, understanding of the Word of God. It means that the Bible says what it means and means what it says, that certain words are put together for reasons, and that the simple message that is there is the message that God has for us. It demands that there's only one understanding or one true interpretation for every passage in the Bible. Now, where that gets uh, things, everybody says, well, this is my interpretation and that's your interpretation. But if the authorities in the words, how many interpretations can there be? I mean, a general sends an order. He says, uh, well, uh, General Washington sent an order to Nathaniel Green. He said, uh, I want you to take your soldiers across the Delaware River on Christmas Eve and prepare for an attack on the Hessian troops at Trenton. Now, how many know what General Green did? He packed his bags and uh, went to see Congress about getting General Washington dismissed as the commander-in-chief and getting himself put in that position. You know what he did? He ignored. He changed the orders. And it wasn't until a little later that he would be removed completely from the army because of his disobedience and his inability to follow the commands. But why do we treat the Bible different? I think I've given this example many times. My uh, father was a machinist, worked at Black & Decker 
His, his main job was, has anybody here ever seen the inside of a drill? You got like a little piece of uh, steel that's about the size of a pencil and all kinds of wires wrapped around it and some magnets on it and things. Well, my dad made the pencil. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of those things. And, and he was given instructions to use a certain kind of metal and to turn the metal to so many thousandths of an inch. And by the way, uh, the piece of paper that you're holding here is somewhere between five and six thousandths of an inch. And he had to keep his tolerances to within like uh, half the thickness of a sheet of paper to make sure that when the shafts that he made went to the guy who put the motor onto the shafts, that everything would work when you put the drill together. And my dad ran all of that machinery, but when he came to church, someone told him, you know, Pete, you're not very smart. And I saw some of my dad's report cards, and I know why they might have said that. Uh, they were a little different and, and not very good. And, uh, and he believed them. Now, you know what? He could run every machine that was at the tool and die department of Black & Decker. I mean, some of those machines were half the size of this auditorium. And he could set them up and put big pieces of metal in and get little pieces of metal out to put in the machines, had no problems. But he was told that this book was too complicated to understand. And I remember as a little boy sitting uh, with my dad, and he would be tired from a day's work. He said, now read that passage to me and tell me what it means. Now, that was good training for me. But I want you to understand something. That was a lie that was told my father. God meant this book to be understood by anyone who wants to read it. And there's only one understanding. You see, uh, how many of you have been here when I've taught on the tabernacle? And uh, I love teaching on the tabernacle because there's so many pictures and representations and it illustrates in such living and complete detail our entire relationship with God and how we should worship Him. What is acceptable worship and what isn't. But do you understand that every detail that was in the tabernacle was actually supposed to be literally carried out by the priest. And it was for centuries. They were to kill the animal. They were to gather the blood of the animal. They were to sprinkle it at the base of the altar. Sometimes that blood would be carried in on the Day of Atonement and sprinkled on the mercy seat. Uh, there, there were different things that had to be done, and every one of them had to be done carefully, and, oft, and many times it would be added to that. This is what you do, that ye die not. God was not playing games. And uh, that was illustrated vividly in, in Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were, who were consumed by the fire of God in their priestly garments for offering strange fire for disobeying 
what the Bible said. It was literal. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Does that mean he turned into a light bulb? No. A light bulb is not light. A light bulb produces light now, doesn't it? What does light do? It allows you to see. Is that not what Jesus does? He allows us to understand, to see and comprehend what the Word of God teaches. You see, um, Jesus, the light of the world in the Old Testament tabernacle, what did we have that gave light? The candlestick. Does the candlestick help us understand a little bit about what Jesus does? Yes. It it does if we'll study all, all of those things. But the simple truth is the candlestick still had to be ordered. The wicks had to be trimmed. The oil had to be prepared. All of that was regulated in the words of the Bible. And where we're going with this is something we all know. God's word was never meant to be evaluated by the believer. It was meant to be obeyed. That's where we get back to the word authority. It was just meant to be carried out. There are no hidden meanings in the word of God except for the ones that God put there. Now, so how do we know that God put them there? Well, that's real easy. He tells you about them. I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. And let's start in verse 10. Jeremiah 31 Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat, and for wine, and for oil. And for the young of the flock and of the herd and their souls shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. And I will satiate the soul of the priest with fatness and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Thus saith the Lord, refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy." Now, that is just part of the chapter there. Jeremiah is talking about the Lord is going to bring Israel back. He's going to reward them where they had mourning. They're going to have joy. 
How many of you caught that one verse that I read? How many of you read ahead in your outline know where we're going? Matthew chapter 2 says that when Herod had sent forth to murder the babies in Bethlehem because he was trying to exterminate the Lord, the Messiah, it says, verse 15 here, was the prophecy. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahel, or Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Now turn to Matthew chapter 2. And verse 18. Well, let's get 17. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy or Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Now, I want to challenge you, if Matthew hadn't put that verse in there, not one of us in this room would have been smart enough to make the connection between Jeremiah 31 and the events that are recorded in Matthew chapter 2. But God, the Holy Spirit, put that in there so that we could understand and make the connection. So there are things that are not revealed or not obvious in God's Word, but He's going to tell us. And if He doesn't tell you, don't go looking for it. That's where people get into trouble. In Revelation chapter 10, It tells us that John was there beholding and Jesus had told him, I want you to write these things down and record what you see and I want you to report it to the seven churches. And then seven thunders uttered their voices and he said, write it not. He said, so I didn't write. I am sure there's got to be some nutcase out there somewhere who tried to tell you what the seven thunders uttered. But you know where they came from? His own imagination. Because it's not in the Word of God. It's sealed. It's closed. We don't know. But why? Oh, part of it is God likes doing things His way, not mine. And He wants you to learn to trust Him with things that you cannot know. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. And yet, how many people over the years have tried to forecast a date When Jesus was coming back. My favorite was 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. And uh, there were some pastors and we were preparing to get married in 1988. And uh, our wedding date was September 3rd. And uh, Jesus coming back, according to this one independent fundamental Baptist preacher, was going to be September 21st. And he said, well, why get married? You're only going to be around for a couple of weeks And, of course, we were joking, because if Jesus was coming back on September 21st, 1988, he would change it, because, no. Uh, The simple truth of the matter is nobody can know. The Bible says you can't know. How many millions of dollars did Mr. Camping spend to advertise the world was going to end? And then he wrote it again, and then he wrote it again, and then he did it again, and then finally he says, I give up, I can't figure it out. 
Jesus said, nobody knows. No man knows. So I'm going to believe what the Bible says instead of what somebody else says. Certain things God revealed, but don't go looking for hidden meanings. How many of you remember the Bible code and how it was supposed to um, tell all of these things, like Bill Clinton was going to be president and, and the uh, Israeli prime minister was going to be assassinated. All these things were supposed to be found in the Bible code. Well, come to find out that the man who wrote the book does not believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, does not believe in the authority of the God of heaven, does not believe the Bible is divine, uh, divinely inspired and God's message to mankind. He doesn't believe any of that stuff. He doesn't believe anything that's in the Bible. So how did he find out all these secret messages? Well, it's very simple. You have a computer. You have about a million bytes of information that make up your Bible. And so what he did was he turned the entire Bible into a text block. And then he played word find games until he found words that made sense. Now, if he didn't like it, uh, 100,000, uh, 10,000 rows by 10,000 rows, make it a square, a million things, he would then just shift it until he found words. Uh, you know what that's called? That's called probability. Because when you take a million characters and start moving them around and start searching for words, guess what? You're going to find words. It's just going to happen. And if you have control over the text block, then you can just keep changing it until you find words you like. And uh, that's not the way we understand the Bible. I think everybody's together on that. And so... We look here, and uh, let's just go to Second Peter chapter 1. I'm, I hope you don't mind. We're not referring to Scripture after Scripture, because every point could have 25, 30 Scriptures. But let's just look at verse 20 of Second uh, Peter chapter 1. It says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures is of any private interpretation. Now, what that simple, simply means is if you're the only one in the world smart enough to figure that out, you're not near as smart as you think you are. Uh, that no one individual has a right to determine what the Bible says. If you can't see it if it doesn't make sense, like how many of you remember being a Catholic? And uh, they always told you Peter was the first pope. Isn't that true? Is there one verse in, in the Bible that says Peter was the first pope? Uh, but, but it says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock. Yeah. It does say that, and we believe that. And Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. You just have to put the pronouns in the right direction. If, if he was really saying, 
I'm going to build my church on Peter, he would have said it. And then Peter would have said it too, because that'd be pretty important if you had that job, wouldn't it? And Peter said, no, we come unto the rock. I've got to come unto the rock. So it's not talking about Peter. It's no private interpretation. You see, that was one of the great debates during the Middle Ages. Was these crazy, renegade Anabaptists were coming up with doctrines that disagreed with the Church of England. Uh, that disagreed with John Calvin. And, and how in the world could you deny a baby baptism? Well, it's real easy. It's not in the Bible. And yet, they burned people at the stake. They put them in jail. They tortured them. Where in the world do you find that Jesus is re-crucified every time the church decides to have a Mass or, or, or celebrate the Lord's Supper? That's not in your Bible. That is an invention of mankind. The Bible is not of any private interpretation. It is simple. It means what it says. And so we go to our second option. Either the words of God are the authority. The Bible says what it means, means what it says. Or you're going to have to trust the Bible is closed to the individual and is only open to specific person or persons. Those are your only two options. Either the Bible's open to everybody who's willing to read it, or it's closed and it's only open to special people with quote-unquote special gifts. Well, my first question is, which special person with what special gifts are you going to trust? Because isn't that what the Catholic Church said? We're the only ones who have the right to understand the Word of God and to give its proper interpretation. That's what the, the, the great debates in the Middle Ages were all about. And, and, of course, if you come from an Orthodox background, they say, you know, the Catholics are the Johnny-come-latelys, and they really are. Uh, the Orthodox Church reflects a much older tradition, uh, but it's still a tradition. And any honest priest will tell you that. He'll tell you that our doctrine uh, does not come from any single man. It comes from the whole history of our church and what our church is doing. And I'm here to tell you that if you want to trust that group of people, that is your choice. I want to trust the words of this book called the Bible. You see... But you're just reinventing the wheel. You're, you're making yourself smarter than all of the church fathers. No, I'm not. You know what? Many of those ancient men who people read, and if we were to uh, Christensen, uh, uh, I'm trying, Polycarp, Ignatius, many of these men were Bible-believing Christians. I believe we'll see them in heaven. Uh, when we start talking about Jerome and uh, Clement of Rome and, um, oh, whoever the guy that did, uh, yeah, Jerome, we talked about him and, and uh, some of these other guys, we have no hope because they didn't believe 
in the truth of the Bible. So why would we believe their commentary if they didn't believe Jesus as their Savior? And this is where Martin Luther comes along. And we've got different cults here. I'll try to move quickly. The cult of tradition. In your Bible, the word tradition is used 14 times. Only one of those times is positive. The source of tradition in Matthew 15 and in Mark chapter 7 and in other places is given as the elders, the fathers. In Mark chapter 7 verses 8 and 9 and Colossians 2.8, it says that tradition was given by men. Uh, and we get to 2 Thessalonians 3.6 and it says... You can believe the tradition that we, that was the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can believe that tradition. So if the tradition is recorded in the scripture, good tradition. If the tradition is not recorded in the scripture, then it's not scripture. It's not authoritative. If it doesn't violate the Bible, okay. You know, I grew up in a church where they sang the doxology every Sunday morning. How many of you know that song? Dun, 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 dun. And uh, I just determined one thing. That if the Lord ever allowed me to be a pastor, we'd never do that every Sunday. And it's not that it's a bad song. But that tradition didn't come from people who are really strong Bible believers. It, it's just, there's nothing wrong with it, but I, I don't necessarily like it, so we're not going to do it here. They may do it somewhere else, and that's fine. No arguments whatsoever. You see, that's what we do with traditions that are not scriptural. Is we can take them, Or we can leave them. And guess what? I don't think any less of a church that sang the doxology every Sunday than I do our church that doesn't. You know why? Because that is a tradition that does not violate or does not... um, You don't violate Scripture if you do it. You don't violate Scripture if you don't. But I'll tell you this. If you want the most incredibly boring, tedious, awful read that you could ever pick is read what went on in England uh, in the late 1700s as they argued about whether you should sing hymns in the church or not. And, And I mean, they fought with each other and cursed each other and wrote nasty things about each other because they were filthy, rotten, worldly people who sang music in church. Well, does anybody remember what the disciples did when they left the upper room the night Jesus was betrayed? It says, and they sang a hymn and went out. So why would you argue against singing in church? But they did. I mean, it it, there are books written on it that fill every shelf in my library. And you know what? Total waste of time. 
But there are people who live and die by that stuff. You know why? Because they're a part of the cult of tradition. And you know, the one problem about arguing from history is, maybe I'll give this example. In 1776, a group of men who lived here in the United States decided to overthrow the government that was there. We call it the American Revolution. And I think it's a subject that every American ought to study. But you know what? There are people living today who believe that they are following in the steps of George Washington because they want to overthrow the government of the United States of America. They say, we are taking the historical right and we believe that we shouldn't be taxed without being represented by the way you are represented Uh, Not very well. Our representative is Carolyn Maloney. I don't know if there's any issue that I have ever held that I've ever agreed with her on. But she's still my representative. And we ought to pray for her. But listen, for someone to say, I'm a patriot because I want to overthrow the government, I'm just like George Washington, is a bold Face lie. You ever run into any of those people, run away as fast and as far as you can. Because they are not patriots. Oh, they sound good. But see, here's the problem with arguing from history. Things were a little different in 1776 than they are in 2014. And you can't make the same arguments and apply them the same way because we live in a different time, in a different culture, in a different world than they lived in 1776. And that's just one illustration. They, they call themselves patriots. They're not. They're anarchists. They are people who do not believe in the rule of law. They believe in the destruction of law. And uh, the next best thing to them are the libertarians. Stay away from those people. They are dangerous. You say, you believe in what are... No, I don't endorse what's going on either. But what I'm saying is the argument from history. And this is what people do. They want to pick their spot in history. You know where Muhammad got the dress code for, for Islam from? He lived in 600 A.D. in Saudi Arabia, and he looked around and he said, this is what people are wearing, so if you're going to serve God, this is what you're going to wear. You know what the Amish did? They looked around about 1820, and they said, if you're going to serve God and you're going to love God, this is what you're going to wear. And we have people today who look around and say, I like what they're not wearing today. I just won't wear anything. Oh, wait a minute. Whatever happened to the Bible? The Bible just simply says modesty. You know what? That solves a lot of problems, doesn't it? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says I ought to give my best to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Somebody said, oh, you're just comfortable in a suit and tie. No, I am not. But let me tell you something. If they'll get dressed up in a suit and tie to go down to Wall Street and play with dirty money, I ought to be at least that serious about presenting the Word of God. Amen? And what, we, what we're trying to do here is understand that this cult of tradition is going to destroy your faith in the words of this book. Because you're going to have to disagree with the Bible in order to agree with men. That's what Jesus said. You make void the laws of God so that you can keep your tradition and everyone, I've given the illustration many times of the Seventh-day Adventist fellow. We used to meet in their building. And I said, listen, the Bible says thou shalt not kindle a fire on the Sabbath day and you drove your car to church today. He said, well, God understands. I said, well, the Orthodox Jews don't understand that. They hire the goys to come and light the lights for them because they're not allowed to kindle the fire. Uh, the elevator stops at every floor automatically on the Sabbath day in a Jewish hospital so that they will not push the button and kindle the fire to move the elevator up and down the floors. They're still serious about that. You know what? We understand, and we'll get to this in a minute, that the Sabbath is for God to help us understand about rest. You see, my salvation is in Jesus Christ, not in what I do. Therefore, every day is a Sabbath because I'm resting from my works and trusting in Jesus's. See how simple that is? You see, all those rules about clean and unclean, what did Jesus say? He said, It's not that that goes in the mouth that defiles you. It's that that comes out of the mouth that defiles you. There is a difference between what is clean and what is unclean. And what you need to do is have a clean heart. And everything else will take care of itself. And all of these things are given to us to help us understand. You have the cult of men. Uh, these are people who claim to be personal, private repositories of God's unique revelation. Went to the thesaurus for that one. Uh, but the simple truth of the matter is, the Bible says no private interpretation. So when someone makes a claim, and yet, Jim Jones took, what was it, nearly a thousand people to Guyana. And then participated in their murder. That's what really happened. It wasn't a mass suicide, because if you didn't drink the Kool-Aid, they put an AK-47 up to the side of your head and helped you. If you didn't die of cyanide poisoning, you died of lead poisoning. And by the way, one of those guys actually shot him. I guess he wasn't wanting to drink his own Kool-Aid. I don't know. But that's what the cult of men will do. That's extreme. But I can tell you the story of an individual that was at Cleveland Baptist Church. They began going around, getting a little group of people to follow him, and he started holding Bible studies 
in his house and started saying, well, you know, Brother Thompson really knows a lot, but he doesn't know about this. And he's bringing in some other books and some things in there and caused a lot of problems in the church. You know why? Because people were willing to follow a man instead of the Word of God. It is alive and well. And by the way, read what Jesus says about the Antichrist. That will be the cult of man. They will worship him as an individual and worship him as God. We have the cult today of expediency. Uh, I'm not sure how many people know who Mark Driscoll is. But uh, he is known in most circles as the dirty mouth preacher. Talking about things and using words in a pulpit that, that would not have been used in public when I was a kid. Well, he just got fired. You know why? Because people in his organization that he built up got tired of his foul mouth and foul ways and bad attitudes. And they pushed him out so that they could do something else, I guess. But you know why? When anybody asks him, why, why do you talk like that from the pulpit? He says, I want to meet people where they are. I want to be, I want to be relevant. Do you know how to be relevant to somebody that's addicted to alcohol? Help them get off. Amen? You want to be relevant to someone who uh, is living under the pressures and under the, the, the control of the world and its habits? Help them break those habits. Well, you don't know what I'm going through. You've never been where I am. You know what? I'm glad. How better can I help you? What did Jesus say? It says, if a brother's overtaken in a fault, either a spiritual restorer, such a one, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You know what? I don't have to be where you are to help you out of the mess that you're in. In fact, if... If uh, your car is in a ditch and stuck in the mud, you know what the best place for me to be is on the solid road so I can get traction and pull you out. Amen. Uh, This is simply what we're talking about. We don't need to be relevant. We don't need to to. Free ourselves from the words of this book. One of the lines that they like to use is, we don't need to be bound by the words. You know, the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. And I'm, I'm in the Spirit. Well, who's to control where your Spirit's going? If it's not controlled by the words of this book. You have no boundaries whatsoever. And people have done the most unbelievable things when they've unshackled themselves. From the words of this book. And so that's why. Why we have so many different doctrines. We have the cult of tradition. The cult of men. And the cult of expediency. Almost anything. Any ism, schism uh, that is out there. You can put it in one of these cups. Pigeonholes, whatever you want. Trash cans actually. uh, And it'll fit. 
Sometimes it'll fit all, take all three to get rid of it. And uh, we come here and we've got just a few minutes and I want us to deal with some tools that are going to keep you under the authority of God's Word. You know why I harp about your Bible reading schedule? Because if you don't know what's in here, how in the world can you follow it? It's like the person said, I'm going to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. Could you give them to me, please? Just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, well, if you're going to get to heaven, shouldn't you know what they are? Might that not help? Well, the simple truth is, that's not what they're depending on to get to heaven. Learn to read with comprehension. You know what? That takes work. And I understand, though I haven't been there, some of you have come here to this country and have had to learn English as a second language. I, I praise God I grew up here. I, I, I just, it's a lot easier. But you know what the first thing we do is try to find you a Bible in your mother tongue so you can compare them back and forth. But you need to learn to read with comprehension. There is no substitute. You've got to have enough knowledge of what's going on in the Bible. We talk about a contextual understanding of the Bible. If you do not keep the Bible in its context, you can make the Bible say anything you want. But you've got to read enough of the Bible to know what the context of the Bible is. And it is a continual labor. Sometimes people say, Pastor, you know so much about the Bible. Well, it's been 32 years that my entire life has been studying the Bible. Uh, I ought to know something in 32 years. And I, I think that I should know a lot more than I do, but... The simple truth of the matter is, spend some time with this book. Exercise. It is a labor. And don't ever forget to pray. Ask God to help you understand the Bible. I don't know how many people over the years have given this story. Pastor, I went to this church and, and, and I, I tried to understand what was going on. I really liked the people, but it was just kind of weird. See, you know what? That was the Holy Spirit of God giving you a nudge in the right direction. God will move you to the truth if you're willing to be moved. But you've got to determine that you're going to do that. Tool number two is a local Bible-believing Baptist church. You will never stay in the Word of God and in the truth of this book without a church. We are not a lone ranger church. We're not the only church that teaches the truth. Uh, we were sent out by the Cleveland Baptist Church. It was started by the Akron Baptist Temple, who was... Uh, and I'm not going to even worry about where that went. Our heritage is not in our genealogy. Our heritage is in this book. Amen. You know what? So I was talking with a guy the other day, and he was saying, well, you know, you need to be historically accurate. Yeah, uh, you do. The Bible says, oh, but that's first century. Uh, 
good enough for me. Amen? We're going to teach and preach what the Bible says. And you know what? Nobody's perfect at it. We're, I'd rather be wrong with the group of preachers that I'm with than to be right with some of these other people out there. Now, that may not make sense to you, but there is every, there are people that are wrong about a lot of things. I want to be right about the important things. I want to be right about this book. I want to be right about the church. I want to be right about baptism. And you know what? That puts me with a very small group of preachers. And when missionaries call us up, I had one missionary call up the other day and he says, well, we want, we want you to support us. I said, well, what do you believe about the Bible? He says, well, I kind of like the King James. I said, has the, has the term alien immersion, does that mean anything to you? He says, well, I have to be honest with you, preacher. I have no idea what that means. And somebody may be saying, I don't know what that means either. Well, it's, and I explained it to him. It's baptism, quote, quote unquote, something you call baptism in a non-Bible-believing, a non-Baptist church. Uh, we don't accept baptism from churches unless they are like faith and practice. And if they're like faith and practice, they ought to be honest enough to put the right name on the door. Amen? And he was just like clueless. And he got mad at me. Why are you grilling me like this? I said, listen, I'm not trying to teach you anything or change you at all. But we want to support missionaries that are on the same page. Pretty soon the phone call got disconnected for some strange reason. I, I don't know if he hung up or... Just wandered into a dead spot, but uh, he didn't call back, and I'm not going to call him back either. Uh, You've got to have a good Bible-believing Baptist church. What we believe is not newly fabricated. It's not. There's no book out there that says, Baptist doctrine, this is what you've got to believe. But, you know, when I was ordained, they had a lot of questions. When Brother Newberger was ordained, we had a lot of questions. Brother Hiram was ordained. We made him write everything out, and then we checked him first. you know why? Because our belief is not new or unique to us. It's connected to this book called the Bible. Now, here's some other tools, and I'm going to go over this very quickly. Dispensationalism. Say, what's that? It's just simply a method of Bible study. You know, maybe we need to go through that again. It's been a while. Uh, It helps keep a consistent, literal understanding of the Word of God. It's why we don't take sacrifices to uh, the temple in Jerusalem. Or why we don't go out and just pile up a mound of dirt and kill an animal like Abraham did. Why don't we do those things? Because we have... A progressive revelation in the Bible that teaches us that when God has fulfilled the truth, we don't need to unfulfill it. We need to go on and live in the revelation that he has given to us today. Um, And the next one is spend a little time. How many of you read through the book of Ruth since Sunday? Don't raise your hand. But there is so much in the book of Ruth that deals with the culture, 
in the historical setting and the way society worked in those days. And let me tell you, it's very different than today. I am so glad that uh, when it came time to marry my wife, I called up her dad and I said, will you give me permission to get married? Uh, I, I would have felt rather awkward with her sleeping at my feet like uh, Ruth did to, uh And I'm sure she wouldn't have uh, liked that either. Uh, that's weird. Uh, but that's the way they did things. It's okay. Nothing bad was done. And don't let anybody with a dirty mind read it into the Bible. It wasn't there. You know, sometimes you just got to surrender to God things that you don't understand. One of the problems I have with our Calvinist people, not going to call them friends, is they try to understand things that God doesn't explain in the Scriptures. I don't understand election, but I do know this. It says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. It doesn't tell me that God chose people to go to hell. I can't find that anywhere in the Bible. That's why I refuse to be a Calvinist. Someone says, well, I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I'm a three-point Calvinist. You know, Calvin wasn't wrong about everything. But I'm not going to go dig him up to get credence to what I believe when it's already written down in the Bible. If Mr. Calvin and I might happen to agree on something, it's not his fault. And it's not mine either. I just want to believe what the Bible says. And leave the dead buried. Amen? And here's the one that will keep you out of trouble. When you try to understand something in the Bible, you put it under the focus of how will this help me live for God tomorrow? You know what? All of a sudden, who the sons of God were in Genesis chapter 6 is absolutely meaningless. Because that's not going to help me live for God tomorrow. But that story of the Good Samaritan, I'll tell you what, I think that's something we could all use some work on. Because it would change the way we live. So instead of wandering around trying to figure out all these questions that no one's ever been smart enough to figure out, we ask Jesus to help us to live. And that will keep you under the authority of God's Word. And that's where we need to be. If we believe this is God's Word, then we need to be under its authority. We need to just simply do what it says. And I could ask you to raise your hands. How many of you didn't do what the Bible says since Sunday? Every hand ought to go up. Because we've disobeyed what it said. So instead of worrying about what we don't know or what we can't know, let's get working on what we all do. And it will change the way we live. All God's people said. Heavenly Father, we just come before you. We ask now that you would work in our lives and that you would help us to understand that so much of what goes for theology is just something to make the guy who wrote the book look smart. That it's really very simple. We need to live for you.
We ask that you would help us to do that. Before we finish that prayer, we'll just give opportunity for you to slip out of your seat and spend a few moments at the altar. And we'll be dismissed.